Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. Hey, if you will, turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. Um, we uh, have been, we're in the third week of a journey through the book of Genesis. I start to say the gospel of Genesis. We were in John for so long. And we'll return to John, by the way, uh, when we get closer to uh, Resurrection Sunday uh, in the spring. But over the past two weeks, we first saw that God is the creator of all else that exists, right? He didn't create himself. God is eternal, uncreated. But he's creator of all else that exists. And we then last week took sort of the panoramic view of Genesis, where we looked at the big picture, went through 50 chapters uh, pretty quickly. And um, we saw that God, as Pastor James pointed out last week, has been very intentional about how he's designed things and how he's put things together in a certain way, and he, we saw that everything has its place, and everything has its purpose, and we're going to build on that this week and continue in that theme, and we're going to take the, the panoramic lens that we've been using and look at things with the macro lens. That's how you take pictures of really, really small, detailed things. That's what we're going to be doing in the um, second chapter of Genesis, and we're going to see that God, again, not only is he creator of all things, but he specifically is the creator of mankind, and he specifically designed us for a purpose and to operate uh, with a certain sense of meaning and in a certain way. We're going to see that in the second chapter of Genesis. Um, notice, though, that in if you were here last week, and if you haven't um, been with us for um, our, our journey through Genesis so far, I would encourage you to check out our YouTube page and just pick up quickly the first two messages. That way you have some context as we go through. Um, but if you'll think back through, in Genesis chapter 1, we saw that God created things like in pairs and things for complementing and completing one another. He made, for example, heaven and earth. He made day and night. He made waters above and waters below. He made the land. He made the sea. He made plants, and he made animals. Now, this is not a yin-yang sort of thing. That's from a different worldview. It's, that's a false teaching. But I'm saying that God makes things to complement and to pair together and to work in cohesion and unity uh, with one another. We'll see that in Genesis chapter 2 today as well. He created humanity, of course, but he didn't create us as one. He created us as two. It's fascinating, uh, at least to me, and we'll see that today. He paired us male and female together, and really all of civilization is founded right there. So overall, if you're a note taker, this is the first thing I want you to write down. Well, what I want you to see is that if you, this would be like your major heading, okay, if you're a note taker. I'm a nerd and a note taker, so I like to take care of my fellow nerds. This is your, uh, this is your big heading. Somebody said thank you. Who was that? Yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah Mickey. Uh, so God's creation of mankind has a specific design for a specific purpose. Uh, we're going to focus on further down in the chapter, uh, verses 18 to 25, but I, we're going to begin in verses 1 through 17 because it, we need some context, and there's some really important details in there that I want us to look at so that we better appreciate 18 to 25 
when we get there. And the stage will be kind of properly set for us. So if you're in Genesis chapter 2, let's read verses 1 through 17 together. It says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, uh, let me just pause and make a little note here. Uh, we'll, we'll read about trees later. These are two different things. He's talking about things that need to be cultivated here in, in verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils, nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first was the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush, that's modern-day Ethiopia area if you're a geography nerd. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely eat die. We'll stop there for now. And we're just going to walk through these first few verses and talk about them before we get to our main section. Notice in verses 1 through 3, it's actually a final statement kind of uh, summarizing what we just read in chapter 1, right? Chapter 1 was like the, an overview, and then verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2 kind of sum things up. So here's what happened. And then in verse 4, we get to sort of a retelling of what we just read, but with a different emphasis. This is a very um, common Hebrew literary device where they give you the overview, and then they, then they sum it up, and then they break it down into details, and that's what we're seeing here today. So chapter 1 is like wide-angle view. Chapter 2 narrows in to a single focus, and that's the focus of mankind is where we're going to find ourselves today. Verse 5, you'll see there's an interesting foreshadowing. It talks about that there had been no rainfall upon the earth at the time. Um, that's going to come in really handy or to be important when we talk about the flood in a few weeks and Noah. Uh, verse 9, we're told that God made all kinds of trees, um, which were, this is interesting, a little tidbit in there, were pleasant to the sight. Isn't that interesting? You say, well, Terry, why is that interesting? <laughs> because in the passage we're reminded that God has shared with Adam something that God had. 
the ability to appreciate beauty. Right? God has shared part of his, uh, um, this, is, this is what's called a communicable attribute of God. It means that God has shared part of his attribute with us. It's an amazing thing. God made trees that were not only functional, like fruit and nuts and things that we could eat, but it says that, the tree, that Adam recognized that the trees were beautiful. They were aesthetically pleasing, and that's part of us being made in the image of God, as we saw in chapter 1. And that brings us to the next thing I want you to write down under your subhead. This will be your first subheading if you're a note taker. Mankind is made to image God on the earth. And I'll tell you why I've uh, phrased it that way. But mankind is made to image God on the earth. Hebrew scholars agree that uh, the image of God is not a reference to appearance. As James mentioned last week, the image of God is about purpose and, and authority that's given to us. It's like saying, I work in education, right? So when you say, I work in education, you're saying, I work as a teacher, right? You follow me? Um, so this is similar to what the Hebrew preposition translated in means here. He, uh, mankind was created as God's image. So imaging then is our verb. It's what we do. We image God on the earth. We are created to be his imagers. It's not an appearance we have, but a status that we've been given. Check this out. We are God's representatives on the earth. All of us as human beings. Can you imagine anything higher that you could be given stewardship of than the earth? It's an amazing thing. We, we are God's representatives on the earth. This is the picture of like um, if uh, a king, earthly king, might have a, a signet ring with his royal seal on it, right? And so if I want someone to represent me, then I give him, if I want JC to be my representative here in the church, and the, and I had like a royal thing or whatever. You guys would kick me out. But, uh, but it, this may have a, a, some sort of seal on it. And I would say, JC, I want you to hold this. Wear it on your hand. And wherever you go, you have my authority with you. You can speak on my behalf. Because, because JC has my seal. He has my image with him. JC has my authority. So that, that's what we're seeing here with man being made in the image of God. And so God has given us a privilege. And in order to fulfill our duty um, to be his representatives on the earth, he's given us certain capacities. And here we see an example of that, the capacity that God has to appreciate beauty. So there's an immediate takeaway here. Despite what the Discovery Channel may teach you, we're not animals. We're not animals. The Bible's very clear about that, and we'll see more on it in just a minute. But again, we make and appreciate beauty. Quick, quick question, do birds make beauty? Yeah. They sing amazing songs, and they're varied and gorgeous. I've got a, a, a wren that wakes, wakes me up every morning, seemingly with a different song. It's not always beautiful, but, but it does its job. It wakes you up, right? But birds make beautiful music but they do not gather in concert halls to listen to it from one another and appreciate it, do they? Animals indeed have thoughts, but they don't write books thinking about their thinking. They don't. So we are categorically different, okay? 
So notice in, then in verse 15 that God, like as, as alluded to before, has given us a mandate of how to treat the earth right here from the beginning. It's the next thing that you should write down. The earth is ours and is our responsibility. So mankind, it, it, the text there tells us, is to cultivate the earth and cause it to prosper. Cause the earth to prosper. God has given us the duty of not just growing things, but to beautify what was already beautiful in his creation. We get to participate with beautifying what he's made. And so as such, we should treat, um, we should treat the earth the way a, uh, a, gar- a farmer family treats the field. It's life-sustaining. So we're going to take care of that thing, right? And so God is, is telling us here that we have been given a mandate to do, to do that, to make the earth beautiful. Um, but be careful here that, you know, we live in Asheville, don't we, man? I felt the tension when I was talking about the, the earth in here. So I want to point out, though, that the earth, when you, when you see stickers on cars and things in Asheville that say, the earth doesn't belong to you, you belong to the earth, that's actually backwards from God's design. God has indeed says that the earth does belong to us, and he's entrusted a large portion of its care to us, though. So, so just to be clear, so we understand we're all on the same page, the earth is not your mother. God is your father. Right? God is your Father, and we don't worship the earth. We worship the creator of the earth. But because we worship him, we obey his command to take care of what he's entrusted to us. You guys follow me? You with me? Okay. Then notice in verses 16 to 17, there's kind of a major foreshadowing. We see God put parameters on Adam and Eve. He's like sort of driving a stake in the ground and giving them some choices to make. Here's a tree. You can eat of any other tree, but don't eat of this one. And that's going to come in major uh, as a player when we get to next week when we look at mankind's rebellion against the Creator. So all of this creation, the designing of things with a specific design and for a specific purpose leads us up to the pinnacle of all of creation, the union of man and woman in verse 18. Let's pick up there in our reading, verse 18, just where you left off, and we're going to finish through the end of the chapter. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last, is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. 
And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Until this point, if you remember from Genesis chapter 1, everything has been called good. Here we see, even prior to the fall, God said something is not good. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. Then God demonstrates that Adam is alone by parading every animal in front of Adam. Isn't that interesting? Now, just a real side note, some skeptics will say, well, Adam couldn't have named all the animals. Notice in Genesis chapter 1, it doesn't name all the animals. It says everything was made to reproduce after its kind, so it's reasonable to think that there were kinds there, like in what we may call in taxonomy uh, a a genus or a phylum here. Um, So Adam could really, an unfallen Adam, it wouldn't be any problem for him to name that amount of animals. That's you really think about it, it's not an issue. But that wasn't the point of the passage. The point of the passage is that God is parading these things in front of Adam to say, Adam, that's not you, that's not you, that's not you, that's not you, that's not for you, that's not your completer, right? It says it's not good for Adam to be alone. God brings the animals in front of Adam and shows Adam that Adam is alone. Adam is of a different kind than the animals, again. He's not an animal. He's a different kind. He is the mankind. That's where we get the phrase. Mankind, you know where we get that? Genesis. All of us in here, male and female, are the mankind. Right? Adam means man. That's all it means. So we are the mankind, and Adam is not an animal. So in spite of all these amazing animals, Adam was still alone, and God was showing him that. None of these animals could ever be the true uh, physical and emotional and spiritual and intellectual companion of Adam. So in a real practical application here, two things. We're not meant to be hermits. It's not good for mankind to be alone, right? You're, you're meant to live in community with one another. We just talked about that in MCs. We're not meant to be hermits and live like isolated from one another. And secondly, secondly, animals are not meant to be our primary companions. Ashevillians, you with me? Animals are not meant to be our primary companions. They're wonderful, but God has made us for one another. He really has. He really has. That brings us to our main area of discussion this morning, and that uh, there's a design for mankind uh, for as man and woman and the act of creation. As you look through chapter 2, you see God just heaping blessings on Adam, just one, one after another. It's an amazing creation, and Adam gets to enjoy it. Um, but the culminating blessing that God gives Adam is Eve. It's like, this is all great. Here's paradise. But even in paradise, Adam needs Eve. So God, uh, knowing man's need for companionship in his great providence and to man's rescue, amen, men, has sent, has sent the woman. Um, this woman is equal with Adam. She is his peer. So in the passage, um, we need to see that. Remember, um, we'll see it later, but think about what has happened until now. There's, there's God, and then there's God's created human, Adam. Adam 
has unbroken, unfallen fellowship with God, does he not? Hello, you with me? Okay, thank you. Adam has unbroken fellowship with, it's not a trick question. Adam has unbroken fellowship with God at this point. What else would Adam need? Was Adam like really truly alone? God, he was with God, wasn't he? Wait a minute. But there was nothing like Adam for Adam to fellowship with. So even in perfect fellowship with God, Adam needs other people. Solitary fellowship with God, even, hear me, even in paradise, solitary fellowship with God is not enough for you. You were designed for fellowship with God and with one another. Our primary relationship is to be with God, and then that should flow out in our relationship with other human beings. That's how God has designed human life to work. We're made for that. So this passage um, is the basis for the entire way Christians view society. Right? It, it, it's all right here, and we'll get to that. Usually this passage is used to talk about marriage, which we will get to. But it's way bigger. It's way bigger than that. The next thing you need to write down is that imaging God is meant to be done in community with others. God's, again, laying out a structure for civilization. And it's to reflect the nature of God himself. God didn't make us because he was lonely. Do you realize that? Right? He didn't need to make us. There is both unity and community in the Trinity, right? God is one being in three persons, so he has love, he gives love, and is loved in and of himself. He needs nothing. But us being made in his image, we need to possess love and share love with, with another person and then share our combined love with a third in community. That is a reflection of the person of God. God is three persons, one essence, different in relationship, and we get to participate in reflecting God's nature when we love one another well. Um, we've been given that same type of ability, that same kind of ability to love and have relationships with one another. This is sociology. This is where we learn how to deal with one another, and that's why we make laws and have government and things like that is because God has put us in community, and we better figure it out or we'll kill each other, right? Uh, we get to love one another well. So uh, we've been created that uh, for that. Um, so I'm going to give uh, some emphasis here, again, that we've been created in a design, and that design is on purpose. It's for a purpose. And when we see that um, God has made us for a specific purpose and to operate with one another in a specific way, do you know what happens when we treat each other or interact with each other or make laws or build societies or have government that doesn't follow God's design for things? We get dysfunction. If you grew up in a family maybe where your parents didn't treat one another in a godly way, you've seen that dysfunction. It's true. We've seen that. We've seen, I, I've seen it myself. Yeah, no doubt. No, it's a real thing. We've seen what dysfunction looks like as a result of not following God's design. So then in the second half of verse 18, I want to make a note that God calls Eve suitable. This is going to make a helpful, a uh, helper fit for Adam. 
That phrase, helper, a suitable helper, we're going to see it again in verse 20, but that captures beautifully the value of Eve um, and her, her, her role and dignity are simultaneously communicated in that. That phrase, helper, is something that God uses to refer to himself as well. When the psalmist writes, the Lord is my help, this is the phrase he uses. And again, man, we've seen that to be true. That in, in many ways, if you're, particularly if you're a husband, you've seen that one of the ways God loves us One of the ways that God helps us, one of the ways that God rescues us is sending people like your wife, right? God loves us well. He helps us well in sending us a helper who's also made in his image, who also can complete that picture of what life is supposed to look like. Um, So in terms of relationships, I want to point out something else. This, pa- this passage focuses on just that between Adam and Eve, the relationship, the relationship. Um, procreation is important, but that's not what's being talked about here, is it? What was not good for Adam? For him to be alone. So Eve was given to Adam for companionship. And Adam was given to Eve for companionship. Now, truly, if there's no procreation, there's not the rest of us, right? We need that, and we've been given uh, that uh, privilege before the Lord as well. But the fundamental motive, then, for this union, this husband and wife that is clearly denoted here, is about companionship. Adam and Eve were given each other for the sake of each other. Um, and God calls it very good earlier in chapter 1. So there's some very practical applications here. Notice that the woman is presented as the completer of the man prior to her being able to do anything for the man. Let that sink in for a minute. She hasn't produced children. Um, If you're an authoritarian husband, shame on you, but she hasn't made breakfast. She has not performed anything. She as herself is valuable. She as herself is the completer for Adam. One commentator put it this way, The woman is presented wholly as man's partner and counterpart. Nothing yet is said of her childbearing. She is valued for herself alone. So the function of the relationship is just that, relationship. And that's, that's the point. Um, so... In the words of the great philosopher John Mayer, fathers, be good to your daughters. Your daughters will love like you do. Girls become lovers who turn into mothers. So mothers, be good to your daughters too. Here's the point. The best thing you can do as a spouse is to love your husband or wife well. The best thing you can do as a parent is to love your husband or wife well. Because we've seen it a thousand times. Our kids either grow up to love like us or they will find someone and marry them that loves like we love our spouses. We've seen it a thousand times. You guys have ever seen this? That's why the foundation of our marriage, we need to understand that that woman, that man is given to me for their sake. 
I need, to, I need to love them well, not just for our own sake only, but also for the sake of our children. Again, if, if we let go of God's design for humanity here in Genesis, by the way, from womb to the tomb, if we let go of that design, then we get, we get into trouble. This has to do with our sexuality. This has to do with the importance of God's design for family. Um, why is that? Why is it that if we let go of God's design, things fall apart, particularly for the family. Why is the family, when the, the, there's trouble in a family unit, that it spreads out to everything else? Why does that happen, you think? Well, it's because here's Adam and Eve created by God, commissioned by God, shown to be inadequate without one another. Eve is given as his counterpart. They're brought together, and then the opening sort of plot line for the rest of history is what? A marriage. Why is that? <laughs> That's the next, why, why is that? Why is marriage sort of the main focus of like the, the funnel for the rest of the Bible? It's because of God's design. Again, here's the next thing you should write down. Marriage points us to the nature of the gospel. If you follow me on Facebook, man, uh, you may have seen that late in the week, I, um, I ran across this book again uh, called Seven Myths About Singleness by a guy named Sam Alberry. I cannot recommend it highly enough. If you're married or single, it doesn't matter. Read the book. It's fantastic. And I rewrote the last fourth of my sermon because of what I read in the book. And I'm going to share some of that. It's amazing. I'm going to share some of it with you. But um, in his book, he says, Remember that creation, the creation accounts open with God creating things in pairs to complete complement, work together in a certain way and for a certain purpose. Listen to this. The relationship between this, this pair here, the man and the woman, the male and the female, will provide a clue to what will happen with the first pair that was mentioned, heaven and earth. The union of man and woman, wrap your head around this, is telling us God's plan for the entire universe. Truly, it's a picture of that. Uh, there's, a, there's a pattern here, and if you're a note taker, you may want to just write down two words, Ephesians and Paul. Right? Paul, in the book of Ephesians, talks about marriage and husbands and wives and things like that, and then immediately he says that that marriage of a husband and wife is really a picture of, Bible students tell me, Christ and the church. Absolutely. Paul refers to Genesis that way. So the mystery behind human marriage is Christ's relationship with the church. And then, think of, that's at the front of your Bible. Think about the end of your Bible and actually the culmination of all of history. You know what's at the end of that? A marriage. With Christ and his church. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we really see that Jesus and his people participate in this ceremony called the marriage supper of the Lamb. Then immediately following that marriage, you know what you see? You see John having this revelation of, again, what happens in Genesis where God created heaven and earth. We see that at the end, John sees a vision of a new heaven and a new earth, a new Jerusalem coming down in heaven and earth meeting. How does John describe it? John says the new earth comes down as a bride ordained for her husband. It's amazing. This, the culmination of all of history is taking place. The universe is being reconciled, and marriage is the only language that John can find to describe 
what's going on. Human marriage then reflects kind of the big arcing story of the Bible. It illustrates what God is doing in the universe. The whole point of the universe is God creating a people for himself through God the Son, Jesus Christ. That's the point of history. That's the point of our Bibles. Pastor Ray Ortland in his book on marriage says this, the eternal love story is why God created the universe and why God gave us marriage in Eden and why couples fall in love and get married in the world today. Every time, hear this, every time a bride and groom stand there and take their vows, they are reenacting the biblical love story whether they realize it or not. And so then this history provides the key to understanding our sexuality. This is where we get the idea that the Bible insists on the heterosexual nature of marriage. Sam Albert, who wrote the book Seven uh, Myths About Singleness, is himself a same-sex attracted man. He's a pastor, and he says this, For marriage to be a reflection of Christ in the church, it must be between like and unlike, male and female. Change this arrangement, and you end up distorting the spiritual reality to which it points. Alter marriage, and you end up distorting the gospel it is meant to portray. And so, I think Alberry's right. So, biblical marriage isn't something we can say, you know, they had some great ideas back in the day. That was fine for them, but we kind of know better now. We can't do that because it's based on God's design from creation. It's not based on something that we made up. It's part of God's design, God's purpose, God's eternal plan, and it points to the gospel. So, this brings us to something really important. I was looking out this morning. About 70% of us in here are single. So if marriage is like this grand thing that points to the gospel, what about those of us who aren't married? Some of us will never be married. Some of us will never pair up with another human being. What is that supposed to look like for us? Um, While we have seen, you know, uh, marriage should be highly esteemed, super important, holy to God, marriage should not be idolized. Don't idolize marriage. Marriage is because marriage is not the ultimate thing. Marriage points to what is ultimate. You hear that? Marriage is not the ultimate thing. Marriage points to what is ultimate. The real marriage is the one we find in Christ, with Christ and his church. The, the marriage between man and woman is to point to that. It's kind of a visual aid. It's a visual aid to the real thing. Um, so think about it. If we look at a picture of a thing and we try to substitute that picture for the real thing itself, we're going to be disappointed, aren't we? Because the picture can never take place of the real thing. Having a picture of the Grand Canyon, no matter how beautiful it is, can never take place of actually standing in the Grand Canyon, can it? It's never meant to. And if we think that that, oh, I've got, I don't need to go to the Grand Canyon. I've got this picture. I'm good. You're, you're going to be really, really disappointed. And so it's never meant to be fulfilling in that way. So, married people, if you ever find that your marriage disappoints you, it's supposed to. It's supposed to. 
It's not meant to bring satisfaction to you. Your marriage can be great and wonderful, but it will never be enough. It should not be enough. If you feel like it's enough, you're missing the point of marriage to begin with, which is to point us to the gospel. Again, so what about those of us who aren't married? Well, our culture, kind of the spirit of the age or whatever, might have you think, well, didn't God design you uh, for sexuality? Didn't God give you feelings and drives and emotions and you have all of those things, and yet you're not married. And so, it, but if you don't fulfill those things, aren't you wasting your sexuality then? That's what the culture would have you think. But a quick cross-reference with our Genesis passage to Jesus actually can help correct that, that bad thinking. It's the next thing I want you to, to, to write down. Sing, while marriage points to the nature of the gospel, singleness points to the sufficiency of the gospel. When Jesus himself was asked about marriage, or actually uh, marriage and divorce, he answered it by quoting from Genesis, man and woman, uh, shall, a man shall leave his uh, uh, mother and father, cling only to his wife. He quoted Genesis. And then he points to the nature of relationships in heaven. It's really, really weird for those of us who are married to think about it. And Jesus says there won't be any marrying in heaven. You know, wait a minute, but I love, I love my spouse. What, I, what does that mean? How can heaven be really good and even better than here if I'm not married? It turns out that human marriage with each other is only made for here. It's not made for heaven. Um, so think about that for a second. The perfect, everlasting existence of mankind does not involve being married to one another. I think that's significant. I think that's significant. Um, marriage here will have fulfilled its purpose. What did we learn is the purpose of marriage here? Companionship, right? But what's that union supposed to point to? The gospel. When you get to heaven, the gospel is completed. Marriage, human marriage, will have served. the vis- You don't need the visual aid anymore. You're standing in the Grand Canyon, so to speak, right? You don't need the the wallet photo, I wish you were here. No, you're here. You're here now. The visual aid has served its purpose. One person said it really well. The Bible does not teach that there will be no marriage in heaven. Rather, it teaches that there will be one marriage in heaven between Christ and his bride, the church. So listen, I I do believe that we will know our spouses in heaven we just won't be married. But in fact, I think that I will be better friends with my now wife, Kelly, then because neither of us will be sinners anymore. It sounds weird, but when we are completely redeemed and removed, sin is like out of us forever, man, we can love one another really, really well. Better than we ever could, even as husband and wife right here and right now. So um, it's to point to Jesus and his church and it will be completed at that time. This, this reality was really reflected in Jesus' own life. Think, think with me, family. Here is the most fully human, Jesus, most complete person, Jesus, who lived his life on this earth as a single man, lacking nothing. But he calls himself the bridegroom, doesn't he? It's because his singleness 
was pointing to the ultimate marriage that he came to establish. And our singleness today is a way of bearing witness to the same thing. To the same thing. Like Jesus, if you're single, you can live in a way that anticipates what is to come. And you could say that that future reality for me is so certain. And it's so good that I can embrace it right now. I can embrace the fullness of the gospel right now. It's a way of declaring to the world that is obsessed with sexual intimacy that those things are not the ultimate. In Christ, I possess what is ultimate. And I don't have to worship idols. You can possess what is ultimate. I want to close by reading a powerful quote uh, from Alberry again. Uh, it's a little long, but hang in there with me. It'll be on the screen so you can follow. He says, Single Christians who abstain from sex outside the marriage bond, bear witness to the faithful nature of God's love with the same authority as those who have sex inside the marriage bond. Hear this sentence. Denying yourself can be just as potent a picture of a thing's goodness as helping yourself to it. Here, I'm going to say it again. Denying yourself can be just as potent a picture of a thing's goodness as helping yourself to it. Both single and married people who abstain from sex outside of marriage, outside the marriage bond, point to the same thing. They deploy their sexuality in ways that serve as a sign of the kingdom and the faithful character of God. Alberry says, this is liberating. It means my sexual feelings don't need to be met for their purpose to be fulfilled. Hear that again. Your sexual feelings don't need to be met for their purpose to be fulfilled. Their purpose is not to be met and gratify you. Their purpose is to show you that you're thirsty for the real thing. The real thing is relationship with God. He says, when I feel that deep sense of longing, that feeling of sexual restlessness and frustration, am I, uh, I am to think of that ultimate restlessness that comes when we live apart from our Creator. A restlessness that has as its answer, has its answer in the one who promised deep and abiding rest for all who come to him. Sexual sin feels like the answer to the restlessness, but like all of sin's pleasures, it is only temporary and fleeting. Celibacy, that is uh, abstaining, isn't a waste of our sexuality. It's a wonderful way of fulfilling it. It's allowing our sexual feelings to point us to the reality of the gospel. We will never, never ultimately make sense of what our sexuality is unless we know what it is for to point us to God's love for us in Christ. So again, God has created all things with a specific design for a specific purpose and with a specific plan in mind. So right here, right now, as we leave this week, I want you to spend some time in prayer. Asking God to help our hearts and minds see his design for our lives. So back up in your notes. How are we imaging God? How are we, how are we representing him with our lives? How are we stewarding the environment and our resources well? God's given us a mandate to do that. How are we doing in our relationships with others? For example, are we neglecting um, letting others in the family of God into our lives or neglecting Getting into their lives, we're, made, we're not made to be hermits. Animals aren't made to be our primary companions. We need each other. We, we are the church. Um, if you're married, how are you reflecting the relationship of Christ and his church with your spouse? 
by the way you love them. If you're single, is the way you live or even think about your singleness reflective of God's true design for it? Listen, if there are things in that list that you would like to talk with us more about, about this week, we want to talk with you. Out at the Welcome Center, there's a, a welcome card that Pastor James mentioned. If we can pray for you, there's a prayer request that you have, write it on the card. Also at that Welcome Center, if there, you'll see some, if you're facing the, the Welcome Center, over to the right, there are some mini books, little pamphlet kind of things with lots of different topics. And there may be something that you see in there that you're struggling with in life, or you, you know, this, this really applies to me. And what we want you to do is stop by there and take a look at those, and maybe they can be the beginning of a conversation. You can read that, and maybe we can get together and talk about it, right? We'd love the opportunity to do that. This morning, we have talked about something that isn't the real thing, but that points to the real thing. Each week when we gather, we do something that isn't the real thing, but that points to the real thing. We call it the Lord's Supper. This is not Jesus' blood or body over here. Um, but the cup and the bread represent the real thing. We do this to remember him. Jesus says, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And so that real thing is what this cross represents. This isn't the real thing either. This is not the cross that Jesus died on. But we have it here as a remembrance of what Jesus did for us in the gospel. He reconciled us to the Father by taking on the penalty that we deserve and offering grace to us. If you have received that grace today, if Jesus is your Savior, spend some time in prayer. We invite you to come up and take the bread and the cup. Take it back to your seat. Take, eat, and remember Jesus.